0: All right, we're continuing in the same lesson from last week, part two, uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verses 12 through 15, and here, this is where Jesus is articulating what the Holy Spirit will do, and I want to focus this week, I'm going to read those verses again just so we have continuity, this is part two from last week, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear, but when He, the Spirit of truth, comes He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. Another powerful reference by Jesus to the coming Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will not speak on his own, will speak only of what God wants him to speak, uh, and his principal message will be about Jesus. Everything will be about Jesus, drawing people to Jesus, the essence of what we're about. And so, as you understand this, what Jesus is saying here in these verses is that there is going to be some greater revelation than you have ever seen before, he's telling the first century church. Uh, And that greater revelation, will take place in three specific ways. There will be a historical revelation, there will be a doctrinal revelation, and there will be a prophetic revelation. All of this will be done through the New Testament. All of this would be done within 40 years of the death of Jesus as the New Testament is written under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So I want to break it down to you so that you understand this and consider it even as you spend the rest of your life reading the New Testament. The first reference that Jesus is making here in terms of the new revelation, there is a historical element to the New Testament, a historical element. This is what Jesus is saying in verse 23 in which he says of the Holy Spirit, he will guide you into all truth. Uh, effectively what that means is he will guide you into the truth concerning me. Uh, And so the the historical elements become evident here. How would we know anything about the history of Jesus Christ without the Holy Spirit? How would we know about the angels that would have come to his mother uh, and reveal that God himself would be implanted within her body? How would we know what took place in the manger scene? How would we know about the shepherds and the wise men? Uh, Who would tell those stories absent the Holy Spirit referencing it and refreshing it in our minds, almost as if a tape recorder was taking place? How would we know that Satan himself didn't try to destroy Jesus in the manger uh, and that they had to flee? To eat how would we know all that how would we know that Jesus spent when he was 12 years old went into the into the temple and, and debated uh, with the priest we wouldn't know any of this how would we know any of the elements of Jesus ministry if not for the Holy Spirit effectively bringing back all truth every single thing that he did the holy it's the Holy Spirit that does this how would we know about the death of Jesus, how it took place, how he prophesied about his own death, how the disciples himself didn't believe or tried to restrain him. How would we understand that? How would we understand how he died on the cross? We wouldn't know any of this but for the Holy Spirit. And how would we know effectively how his body was taken down, entombed, and then arose from the grave within three days? All of this is the historical basis uh, of the life of Jesus, all brought to bear through the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that effectively allowed these men to write as if they sat there and watched it unfold like a movie. I mean, did you ever stop to consider this? That much of this is written, the Gospel of John, which you're reading right now, is written about 40 to 45 years after Jesus died on the cross. That's the best best uh, estimate right now. This reads as if he's sitting there, reading his notes i mean you have to you have to marvel and i have no doubt that every sentence every word every dot is exactly as he wrote it i believe that why do i believe it because the holy spirit speaks to my heart on that i have a confirmation about that so this is all the work of the holy spirit and so you see the historical relevance of this but i want to even show you something even greater Uh, Well, it's not greater, but even more profound, and that is that the Holy Spirit even gives us insight as to what took place even before this creation. Take a look at Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. Again, this is written by the apostle John. You know Revelation is written by John, uh, and he's writing this at the end of his life. This is probably now, again, about 40 or 50 years after Jesus would have died on the cross. And so verse 1, a great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. That, what you see there, is that a symbolic of Israel and the 12 tribes. Uh, Verse 2, she was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth, giving birth to the Messiah. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns And seven crowns on his head, that is Satan, his tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he could, he might devour the child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of uh, for 1,260 days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, The ancient serpent called the Devon or Satan, who leads the earth uh, the whole world astray, he was hurled to the earth, uh, and his angels with them. So, what is this? What is God displaying to you here? God is demonstrating that there was uh, an angelic revolt that took place even before this creation. That in that revolt, uh, Satan revolted against God. Satan wanted to be God. Satan was basically jealous of Jesus, and you can find that in other places. Uh, uh, but Because Satan was a created being. He was the highest created being, the most talented created being ever. Uh, and yet, he even though he had all these talents, in fact, the Bible tells us in other places that most likely Satan was in charge of praise and worship, if you can believe that. He was a musician, a talented musician, and yet he despised Jesus because he saw the exalted place that Jesus had. And so what you see here is the, through the Holy Spirit, we get a glimpse into eons past where there was this revolt in heaven. And the, Satan is cast from heaven along with one-third of the angels to earth. That's his home, folks he's home. This is his home. And so what you see here is as he was cast to earth, that he tried to devour Jesus Christ even at birth. All right? You understand this? Even at birth, Satan surrounded, looked for the manger, looked for Jesus and would have done anything to destroy him. And as you know, that he inspired Herod to kill all those boys uh, two years and uh, under, in the Bethlehem era, it's terrible, terrible sin. Well, that's all, all taking place under the inspiration of Satan. I want you also now, as you see this, that's the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We wouldn't have gotten this, but for the Holy Spirit revealing it to John, that's what takes place. Now, look, turn if you would, just to get confirmation. Look at Ezekiel chapter 28. Now, I'm giving you this because I want to show you that the Holy Spirit also Influenced the prophets. All right? Even though the Holy Spirit was not over the entire, over Israel, not over the entire church, but the prophets had the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so if you look at Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 13, this is again under the influence of the Holy Spirit, God speaking. Look at verse 13, and this is being spoken of. It says about a prince um a certain prince but it's but it's no prince this is no earthly prince verse 13 you were in eden the garden of god whoa satan was in eden yes he was you know that the garden of god every precious stone adorned you Ruby, topaz, and emerald, chrysolite, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. How do you like that? You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You're walking in heaven. All right? He walked, he walked in heaven. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence, and you sinned, so I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God, and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and And you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. By your many sins and dishonest trade, you have desecrated your sanctuary. So I made a fire come out from you, and it consumed you. And I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who were watching. All the nations who knew you are appalled at you. You have come to a horrible end and will be no more. Wow. So what you see here is through the Holy Spirit, a glimpse back, a glimpse back in the eons. Uh, and I believe even before the current creation uh, that, that, that Satan was, was uh, walking between the earth uh, and heaven. Uh, and, and we see that, that as a result of his character, or lack of character, even though he was a beautiful person. The Bible says the most beautiful being ever, ever created. I mean, it's so you know, you can imagine people drawn to, to that. And yet this despicable person. Uh, there's another verse in the Bible that refers to Satan as the accuser of the brethren. I love that. And if you ever notice how how uh, you'll see a spirit where people begin to speak out about other people, say negative things about them. Ask God to take that away from you because that is effectively the spirit of the accuser of the brethren. Be a uniter, not a divider. Amen? Amen. So, I mean, the point of this is you see the, the very historical element. We would have none of this. We would have none of this had the Holy Spirit not revealed it to us uh, in so many ways. And here's the other thing. This separates us from the other religions. We have a historical basis in our religion that the other religions don't have. They don't have a historical basis. But we have a historical basis, uh, seeing, knowing from the beginning oh, where we're from. We saw, we saw Abraham being called out. We see exactly how God prepared them. We saw how, how God called the Jewish people out of Egypt. We saw how God called Jesus and God died on the cross. There is a solid historical basis, irrespective of the doctrinal side or the prophetic side. There is a solid historical basis for what we believe in. Um, and so that is, that is important. It sets us off from uh, mythology. Now, second, there is also a doctrinal, a doctrinal element uh, in the New Testament. This is what Jesus says when he says about the Holy Spirit, he will take what is mine, and make it known to you. That's in John 14, 26. He will take what is mine and make it known to you. The doctrinal aspect that Jesus speaks about is evident in the New Testament, specifically uh, in the epistles, in Romans, in Revelation, and John. So we, ju- we do not just study the fact that God has son- done something historical. We don't just study that. We study why. Why has God done what he has done? Why did he send Jesus? Why did Jesus die of sin? And what is our relationship with God prior to Jesus and post Jesus? All of those issues are what I refer to as doctrinal issues. Now, I'm going to give you a survey. Obviously, I could spend three weeks, you know, full time speaking about all the doctrines in the New Testament. But I'm focusing rather on, on some broad brush uh, doctrines. Look first of all at John, Gospel of John, chapter 20. John 20, verse 31. We'll start with 30. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Remember that. There's much of what Jesus did that is not in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. There it is, folks. That's why the miracles were written about. Uh, God gave us this doctrinally, so you would believe in Jesus, and believing in Jesus, you would have everlasting life. That's the doctrine. All right, right there. Look at First Corinthians chapter one. First Corinthians chapter one, verse twenty-one. and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the wisdom of God is stronger than man's strength. What's the doctrine then? We preach Christ crucified. Not some wise mythological uh, philosophy, all right? Not something that titillates your mind, all right? Not some, some uh, mythological figure, but we preach Christ crucified, God himself crucified on the cross for your sins. That is a doctrinal position. Look at 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. There it is. Keep in your heart the reason for the hope that you have. I like to say to people, have have a sound bite ready. You know what a soundbite is? When I practice law, one of the things that I would always do anytime I had a, a, a big case is I would be able to distill the case uh, into a 30 second summary. I would distill it into a 30 second summary so that if the newspapers asked me, uh, What is it that you're trying to, to say in this case? I would have a 30 second soundbite that would encapsulate it. And what you find is that uh, people on television and people on the radio, they crave that. They don't want you to just go, well, you know, uh, yeah, uh, uh Jesus was a good man. Uh, he came, they're gone. You understand? They're gone. People don't have that attention span. You need to be able to distill in your heart the reason for the hope that you have. That's the doctrine of what we are called to be. That means you need to have in your heart a thirty-second soundbite. I'm not saying that that's the summary of everything, but have it as the fact, the hook that people hear the hook, and they go, ooh, ooh, oh, that was powerful. I want, I need more. I want to hear more about this. Who is this that you're talking about? So you need to do this. So many of us don't do this. And so people will say to you, why why do you go to church? And some of us go, I I like the music. (laughs) I like the music too, but I'm not going to church just for the music. All right? You understand? You need to have an articulation in your heart for the reason that you have the hope that you do. And that's what God wants you to convey. That's a doctrine of our faith. God wants you to convey this. Uh, And so we need to look at this in an important way. Uh, Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. These are doctrinal verses. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that, the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed. Every word in this Bible is the breath of God. If you don't believe that, then I failed miserably as your teacher. This isn't written by men sitting in a, in a, in a closeted room uh, having good thoughts uh, through literature and experience. This is, this is the Holy Spirit of God himself sitting there and taking the pen and writing what you read. And that is why Scripture, all of it, is God-breathed, and why all of it is for raising us up and teaching us and drawing us to, to God. This is the doctrine of what we stand for. This is the doctrine through the Holy Spirit. Look also now at Ephesians chapter 4. I'm giving you a Bible workout today, huh? Ephesians chapter 4, let's start with verse 9. What does, the, what does he ascended, meaning Jesus, mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? Verse 10. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he, Jesus, who gave some to be apostles some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of God. We're not here just to entertain ourselves. We're not here just to have our minds titillated uh, by stories. We are here because God called us, God called us and gave us gifts, some of us to be apostles, some of us to be prophets. And when you see prophets there, that also, that really relates today to preachers. Uh, Some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. Why? What's the call? The call is to prepare the entire body of Christ. You, in every aspect, the entire body of Christ being prepared under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is what God has foreordained. And all of that comes through uh, because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at Romans chapter 8. I'm doing this again to show you the doctrinal aspect of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Another doctrine, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be delivered, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. When people ask you, why do we have hurricanes? Why do we have natural disasters? The answer isn't, I don't know. The answer is that the creation has fallen. Everything fell in the Garden of Eden. Sin came into this world, and sin didn't just just enter into the lives of human beings. It entered into the whole creation. And so every aspect of creation is decaying. Somebody who was a scientist and in one of the other classes said, "Well, you know that's one of the natural laws of physics that uh, everything created will be decayed is decaying." He said, "You believe that?" I said, "Let me get something straight with you, brother. Do you believe that if God said it's not subject to decay, that that law of physics would not exist?" He looked at me and he said, "Yeah, I guess you're right." Yeah, you guess I'm right, all right? It's only a law of physics because God created that law of physics. You understand? When we were created, we weren't created to die. We weren't created to decay. This world wasn't created to have hurricanes. But as a result of sin coming in, the entire creation decays and is corrupted. That's why we have hurricanes, if you want to understand it. All right? That's why. Because what you see is not what God planned. Look also uh, uh, at at verse 21, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Carlo was at a family dinner during the summer And somebody in his family, uh, from another denomination, made reference to the fact that uh, God's creation is perfect. How could you say creation is not perfect? You're you're blaspheming. And I give Carlo a lot of credit. It's like nine o'clock at night. He calls me up. (laughs) I'm uh, I'm at a family dinner. I need I need you to give me a verse. And let me tell you, any one of you can do the same thing. I don't care where it is or when it is. If you have an issue, you call me up and I'll give you a verse. Of course, I gave him this verse that the creation is groaning in anticipation of its liberation. Well, you get a verse like that. You know, the only thing people can go is, up, 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 up. you understand? All right? I mean, you don't have to have opinions, give them the word of God. You understand? Give them the word of God. This is the doctrine that the Holy Spirit has given us. Who could make this up? That the creation groans for its liberation. This is under the power of the Holy Spirit. And you see this. Uh, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan in- inwardly as we wait eagerly eagerly for our adoptions as Son, the redemption of our bodies. Look. We're sitting here every week praying, God, touch us. God, heal us. God, raise us. Why? Because we know we are eroding. We know we're failing. And so as we do this, we have in our heart that adoption by Jesus that there will become a day will take us out of this world and we will have a glorious body forever. We will not be subject to those issues. You understand? I've su- not be subject to those issues. That is the glorious hope that we await and the creation itself has that same hope. How about that? How about that? You know, how about that? The, 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 what God has given us. And so you see this is all in the doctrine of, of the Holy Spirit. It's so incredible. Look also, at, while we're in Romans, uh, look at um, uh, Romans 8, uh, Romans 8, verse 2. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. What's the doctrine there? The doctrine there is that your righteousness is like filthy rags. Oh, 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 wait. Oh, I follow the Ten Commandments. Well, you just broke one right there because you're a liar. Yeah. <laughs> you just broke one there, you're a liar. I am amazed when I hear people say to me, well, I'm a righteous person. I could never say those words. I could never say those words, I am a right. I am a sinner. I am a sinner brought here by the grace of Jesus Christ. And if you say those words, I am a righteous man, get on your knees and say, God, give me a greater wisdom of what my heart's like, all right? And let me say this also, because somebody chastised me by saying, when I said I was a sinner, and they said, well, what is it? What sin do you have that the power of the Holy Spirit can cure? And I said to this person, you have no idea what you're talking about. Every day, we carry around this flesh, and we sin, and we sin, And I don't care, even while you're sleeping, you're sinning. You're thinking of evil thoughts and you get out of bed, you put your foot on the ground. The first thing you do is sin. And the only way that you can escape that spirit is by asking Jesus to wash you. Why do you think Jesus did the foot washing? What do you think that was about? And Peter said, oh, no, 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 you can't wash my feet. Then Jesus says, then you'll have no place. You'll have no, but he saved Jesus. Why are you saying that? because you need daily sanctification. And that is why Jesus said to Peter, you're already clean, but you still need to be washed daily. You see the doctrine that the Holy Spirit has given us, this greater understanding of what it means to follow Jesus, to be called by Jesus, to be saved? Look, this is why I emphasize to you that salvation is day one. If you don't get anything else that I've taught this year, I hope you get this. Salvation is day one, having nothing to do with anything that you deserved Not that you're a good person. Not that you're going to church. Not that you have a winsome personality. Not that you've given millions of dollars away. Zero. He saved you because of the grace and mercy and the blood of Jesus Christ. You understand? But day two comes. Day two comes. And what are you doing? Sitting there with your hands in your pockets? Oh, yeah, I'm saved. I'm saved. I'm saved. Going to heaven. Going to heaven. Give me a chair so I can sit down and get my breath on the road, on the narrow road to life. I'm done. Oh, man. You're just starting the rest of your life. He saved you for a reason. He called you for a reason. And I'm giving you all the doctrinal passages that explain the fact that God has called you and saved you to bring this message of hope to the world, to be his hands and feet, to go out to people who are in desperate need and touch their lives. Look, you see what we're doing back there in Salvation Army? Are we doing this because we're building up rewards in heaven? No way. We do this because we love Jesus. We love him with a profound love. And and the way we express our loves is saying, Lord, how can I do your work here? How can I touch those people who need to be touched here in this world? What do you want me to do? And that's why we do what we do. You understand? That's why we would distinguish between day one and day two. Yes, you're saved, having nothing to do with anything that you deserved or did on your own other than recognize that you were lost. But day two requires a willfulness on your part. Lord, help me to be your disciple. Draw me, Lord, to do the kind of things you want me to do. Lead me, Father, to be the kind of person that you want me to be. Bring people to me, Lord, who you want to be drawn to the kingdom. Lord, Open my eyes so I can see what you need to be done, not for me, but for you. And every day, Lord, help me to keep my face in the dust, not to raise myself up, not to think of myself as righteous. Or as my dad said, what we need are uh, unconscious saints and conscious penitents. How's that? Is that about say it all? Unconscious saints, but conscious. Penitence. Let's close. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you for the words that you've given us, Father. Lord, I thank you for the New Testament. I thank you for the revelation of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. Lord, as I sit back and look at what you've done, I am amazed, Father, that you would do this for a human race that is so outside of your will. And yet you love us. You love us. You died on the cross for not only the righteous, but the unrighteous. And so, Father, we thank you for that gift. I thank you, Lord, for all you've done. I ask you, Father, to bless our people, protect them this week, and lead them back next week to continue the study of your word. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you.